Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this really this lofty, uh, theologically rich and profound book of Hebrews. We, um, as we get near the end, uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to, to, to land it well, to understand the thrust of this book. We ask that you would help us to, to know the historical context, the things that uh, they were wrestling through, um, how the principles transcend time and relate to us. We ask that as we uh, continue to worship you through the studying of your word, we ask that you would uh, speak to us through your word. Help us to um, have grateful hearts. Lord, help us to understand all that you've done for us in Christ. And we ask um, that you would bless our time uh, with one another as we uh, look to you uh, through your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking this city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray, amen. So this passage this week, as I studied it, it felt very like disjointed. It was a, it, you know, we have the one verse that many of us know who will see it on postcards, we'll see it on like coffee table books of encouragement, uh, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a verse that's one of the verses in Hebrews, it's very well known. But, but when I look at the whole of these verses, I, I was struggling with the, where's the thread that sort of holds it all together? What's the thought that goes through this? It was difficult for me as I was wrestling and thinking through it this week. I know that if, uh, going back to chapter 12, verse 28, we know that the context um, keeps us sort of focused on the idea of a reverential, holy worship um, that's filled with gratitude. In verse 15 of chapter 13, we see this, that we're to continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So a uh, bookend in this section is this attitude of worship and gratitude. How, how does this all fit together? And I think to help explain it in a way that we can follow, I, I want to take it a, a bit out of order. I want to start with verse 9. For in verse 9, I think we identified the problem that the author of Hebrews 
is trying to rectify, protect against, um, to, to encourage. And so there we read, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. So this word, do not be carried away, is a word that conveys sort of the idea of, of uh, the, the wind blowing something along or uh, the current in the water sort of uh, pulling a boat off course. Um, I think it was in 2000 or 2001, I found myself in Mississippi doing some training. And the big news for us was in the midst of our training is that the 160th was going to come. Now, the 160th, for those of you that aren't familiar with the Army, it's the Special Operations Airborne Command, and they only fly special operations, and they're very high-speed pilots that can do, like, amazing things in the helicopters. And so they were going to come out to us in Tunica, Mississippi, and we were going to have this, like, grand old time just, like, letting them work their magic with us in the back and letting us jump out of them, do fast roping and all kinds of fun stuff. And so the first night that they were out there, there was, uh, we were supposed to hit this compound through fast roping. Now, fast roping is where they throw sort of like a rope out the side. It's a thick rope. And imagine sort of what a fireman does sliding down a pool. And so we were going to uh, go out, stack on this building, clear the house, and then basically exfil with a helicopter. And they were going to do some low flying in. It was going to be a lot of fun. And it was, was at night. And so it was a really, really dark night. And so when it was my turn to go, I... Um, I'm normally like the second guy out, and as we came, they threw the rope out. I basically went down. As I was going down the rope, something happened with the pilot. I didn't have an opportunity to talk to him to see what happened, but something happened where the helicopter lost a little bit of altitude, and so we, we dipped. I, I, I don't know if it was 10 feet. I don't know if it was 5 feet, but there was a dip, and I was unaware that it was happening because I was on the rope going down. And so what happened is the ground came on me a lot faster than I, than I was expecting. I couldn't see the ground. But next thing I knew is my heels hit, like the very edge of my heel. And I just felt this like explosion of pain from my heel to like the top of my head. And then I went to the prone position because I was supposed to, but I was like, I saw stars and I was, ah, what, like, where am I? What's going on? Man, am I going to be able to stand up? This is like really bad. It was, it was scary. And I had about 15 seconds to get to my feet by the time that everybody else was down. And by that time, I was like able to push through it. And so I got up and we did our operation. We came back. And that night, I was like, oh, man, I did something. So then, of course, I have all my buddies that are, uh, you know, amateur chiropractors, meaning they have no experience, but they can push and pull and kick and shake me around. We're doing all of that, making the problem way, way, way worse. And so the next day, we were supposed to go skydiving. And I think... This is, this is perfect because skydiving is the exact opposite of what happened. And I, had this con, I had this compression injury. So if I pack my parachute, I can open everything back up, back to amateur chiropractics. And so it was genius to me. So when I packed my parachute, I didn't roll the nose so it would have a violent opening. I was expecting my boots to fly off. It was so strong. So I, I jump out of the helicopter. I pulled the parachute. Boots go above my head. I'm like seeing stars again. I might have lost consciousness. I'm not really sure. But I remember sort of getting my bearing, going, where am I? Okay, I'm in the sky. I, okay, 
There's the, the, the field. I remember seeing the, the, uh, like, you know, the farmers do the rows in the dirt before the plants start to come up. And so I saw the rows of dirt, and I could see some parachutes, kind of that general vicinity, and, and there were some lines running uh, perpendicular against, like there were two lines in the, the, the dirt just kind of going the wrong way. And I'm thinking, what? What's going on down there? And then as I was getting lower and lower and lower, I realized that they'd said something about the winds were sort of like we were pushing the limit on the winds. And I realized where I was supposed to be going 30 miles an hour forward, I was like not moving on the ground. And then it dawned on me a few minutes before landing or maybe like 30 seconds before landing that those two lines, that was my buddy being drugged uh, from the winds across this field. And so, of course, when I hit, I... Um, I immediately get drugged to all which way, and I'm trying to do everything I can do not to cut away. And you're going, why, what does the story have to do with anything? Because <laughs> this is the picture of do not being carried away. I was being drugged, carried away by this parachute. And the author is saying, don't, being carried away, don't be carried away by strange and varied teachings. And so we hear strange and varied teachings, and we... We think that this is strange and varied. Like, it's weird what, that, that they're falling for something that they shouldn't have fallen for. But the reality was, is they were falling or they were being led away. They were being uh, carried away by these varied and strange teachings, which were actually things that they were very comfortable with. It was something that they were, uh, had grown used to, that they grew up with. They were strange and varied because they were um, opposite of what the scriptures at large talked about and what the author has been encouraging them not to do. Namely, they were promoting religion, not grace. So he says, don't, don't be carried away. This is the very thing that they were struggling with. Remember, this happens, this story, the, uh, the, the, the timeline that we're on, that we know the letter of Hebrews was written about A.D. 65 to 69, one year before the temple would be destroyed uh, under Nero. Persecution was on the rise. These are Jewish believers who grew up in their faith. And when Jesus came through his testimony over the course of the next 30 years, they came to faith in Christ alone. But as Nero began to get crazier and crazier, literally, and the persecution began to mount and mount, these individuals were being drawn back by their families, their friends, their peers to come back to the temple, to come back to Judaism. It's safe here. It's glorious here. You're, you're meeting. They're being told they're meeting in a house. They were, as far as we know, they were sort of destitute. They were facing great persecution. And so there was a real temptation to go back. So the author here says, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. He expands on this. We see it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, but what he says is not, to, not by foods through which those who were occupied were not benefited. Now we're going to get into this, but what we see is this, this compare and contrast. There's grace. There's relationship with God that has been provided for us by Jesus and then there's religion, there's works, there's a system of doing all of these things to try to earn favor with God. 
And so he says, don't be, don't be carried away from grace over to works. I don't know what things are pulling us away from grace. I don't know if my wife is in here today. I don't think she's in here so I can talk about her freely. <laughs> we, 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 grew, we grew up in very different circles. That's an understatement. See, I, I was a pagan. I, I, um, I grew up in the flesh. I, 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 uh, I mean, we'd go to church and stuff, but it really didn't. It, 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 I, I, you know, I, I was raised with a theology of God has done so much for me, so you can, you can give him an hour kind of thing. And so that was too much for me. I, I was very carnal in my life before Christ. Um, so, so my temptation... My flesh pulls me not back into religion, but, but back into the flesh, into the world. Now, now, my wife was raised in sort of what, what I've learned is called, you know, independent, independent fundamental Baptist, um, hardcore uh, religion. And she has her own story of discovering grace as, um, as a young teenager through some hardship, and I would say that those that grew up in religion, and we have both ends of the spectrum in our body, and so we do have those amongst us that you're, you're being drawn away is, would be to depart from grace and to sort of uh, find your validation with God through your religion and your works and your doing certain things. And we all can be drawn away in the flesh. What, what things draw us away? I found that I don't struggle with uh, being drawn away on Sundays anymore with the NFL. Like, that's just not even a factor anymore. So praise the Lord for the Chargers leaving in that respect. Um, like, I, I mean, it was a struggle. It's like, hey, sometimes there's a game at 10 in the morning. Sometimes it's like, you know, once every, like, 10 years, there's a playoff game that happens to be at 10 a.m. And, and it was a struggle. There, there, there are things that draw us away from God. And the author wants us to be reminded to remember what Jesus has done and to stay the course. And so going back to verse 7, is he's going to give us some practical instructions. He's, he's helping us. He's helping them. The first thing he says is remember those who led you. This word to remember is to look at again and again. To, to meditate upon, to think about certain individuals. Um, they're going to look at individuals, uh, their teaching, the fruit of their life, and then they're instructed to imitate their lives. Everybody, all commentators believe that verse 7 is referring to individuals that had a profound spiritual influence in the recipient's lives, but all of them had died. And so they're looking back, they're remembering, they're reflecting upon individuals who spiritually guided them, spiritually influenced them, they're now departed, but they're not to forget their lives. It's very much like Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of the faith, that we're to reflect upon these lives. We're to look upon them, remember, how did they live? How did they navigate their lives? So the first thing we see that these individuals, are, are they stand out because what they did is they taught the word of God to them. That their lives, and this isn't just pastors, these are individuals. We, it's not just pastors and Bible teachers. We, we all that know Christ 
that you should be uh, sharing the word of God with your family, uh, your spouse, your children, your neighbors, whatever relationships you have, there's this, you know, there there are those that I've known in my life that, that sort of God has used because the term I use, that they bleed the Bible, like there's something abstract about them that they're not even talking about the Bible, but the Bible is coming out of them sharing a message. When I look at this passage, I see the, the value of a, sort of an intergenerational ministry setting because it would assume that many of these people were older than the individual's and the assumption is, is that these younger generation, they actually had a relationship with the older generation that they could be influenced by them. So much of our church culture, we get separated by age and marital status. And what you, like you can splice it out a million different ways, but the body is one. We need each other. We don't all need to be looking like each other and have different lots in life. We need one another. You need people that are older than you in the faith. You need people that are younger than you in the faith. And so the, he's telling them, look, remember, reflect upon these individuals that went before you. Think about their teaching, and not just their teaching. Because you could be the greatest Bible teacher, but if your life is a mess, you know, how many testimonies of pastors have been absolutely decimated because it turns out they've been in adultery for years? What does that say about their life? So, so, so there's, a, there's a challenge, not for hypocrisy. There's, there's this challenge that these individuals that taught you well and that they went the distance faithfully for the Lord. And, and I'm not condemning anybody's past. It's not where you started. It's where you finished or how you finished. Because remember the context. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. This doesn't mean that any of us, or none of us are perfect. So don't, don't go and let Satan start beating you up over some sin in your past. But these individuals that have led them well, being faithful to the word of God, being uh, faithful in their lives to see uh, the fruit in their lives. Um, as I've been thinking about this passage, I know I mentioned him the, the other day, but there, there's, a, there's two voices very much in my mind on a regular basis in my uh, serving the Lord here at Grace Point Church, and it's George and Evie Farrington. And I, I don't even know, how many of you actually knew George and Evie Farrington? There's like a couple of hands that go up. Um, but George and Evie passed away a couple of years ago. George, in his retirement, he moved back from the ministry here just to be in retirement at Hideaway Lake. But George was a pastor at this church when it was back behind Fat Ivers in the 60s. And this old man became like my best friend. As I got here not knowing what I'd got myself into, he, he was so faithful in pointing me to the word of God and staying true to the teaching, guarding my life, guarding my marriage, guarding my family, but serving and having a heart for the community around us. And so when I look at this, I, what, what I see is he's an individual that comes to my mind, one of those guys in the he- Hebrews chapter 11, that as I live my life to remember, to reflect upon his faithfulness, his life, his teaching, to be encouraged by it. I think this is why it's so important for us as Christians to read biographies. Not, not just biographies on fill in the blank, but, but men and women throughout history who 
were faithful in their walk and their relationship with Christ. To, to read their stories and how uh, they walked faithfully through difficult circumstances and they stood for the Lord and to see what God did in their life, not so that you can become them, but so you can look to their example that you can mimic them, that you can imitate them in your life, not as they did, but in your own setting. That's what we're told to do here. I'm in a pastor's group, and this week as I was studying, one of the guys, it was really sweet, um, he, he shared this post, and, and uh, he said, I just want to share with you guys, I, he had his George, I don't know the guy's name, and when, when his George died, the widow invited him as the pastor to, uh, to go through his George's library and to help himself to any books that he wanted and now this was you know I got the impression this is like five ten years ago that he got all these books and he said this week I I happen to be teaching through this particular book in the Bible and so I go to this book and I remembered that it came from this man who had this influence and as I'm studying I, I find his handwritten notes in the commentary with his thoughts on on, on the things that he was going to teach about, he's like, I just found myself in tears reflecting upon this man's life and being encouraged by what he said in his words. And I think that's what he's getting at to here. And then he transitions to verse 8, which seems to just come out of the middle of nowhere, but it fits really perfectly. This Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Literally in the Greek, it's Jesus Christ Christ yesterday and today, the same into the ages. How, do, how does this fit? Well, looking back to the previous generation that is no longer there, it could be discouraging. Yeah, they were faithful, but they're gone now. Who do I look to? Suddenly, as he already has written in Hebrews chapter 2, we fix your eyes upon Jesus. Because Jesus... Christ is the same yesterday and today. He'll take care of you. And there's this sort of into eternity future. He will remain faithful. So this Jesus who lived and died some 2,000 years ago is still living and active and working and moving in our hearts and lives today. And he's pointing us to him. This is a theological term, the immutability of Jesus, the, uh, that, that God is unchanging. And so while life is going to throw a bunch of temptations and this world is going to lead you astray from grace, and grace really is the jugular vein of Christianity amongst all religions, you look at any religion, any cult, all of them will say you have to do, you fill in the blank in order to get right with God. Biblical Christianity is the only religion that says it has been done for you. Believe. Period. So he says keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. When I, I, I don't believe that Paul the Apostle wrote Hebrews. There are many great scholars who, who do in the past, not many. I don't want to get into that argument. But I want to look at Paul's life. If you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy um, chapter, I think it's 4. Yeah, 4. <clears throat> this is uh, really Paul's last will and testament. And the reason I want to go to this chapter is these are his last words that we have. 
We know that Paul had a young protege, Timothy, that he poured his life into, that he mentored, he commissioned to do the work of the ministry, that he placed him in a difficult situation over a difficult church dealing with things. We see in verse, uh, I'm not going to read it, but verses 9 through 16, we see that his condition, that he's, he is under arrest, he's, he's, he's in a, a pit. It, it's probably wintertime because we're told that he's freezing and he has no jacket and he pleads with Timothy, if you can get to me, please don't forget my jacket because I'm cold. Paul is about to become, verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 13, he's, he's about to be an individual to Timothy that he's to remember upon, he's to reflect upon, he's to um, look at his teaching and the fruit of his life. And this, ta- this chapter can bring me to tears. And so Paul, as he knows he's about to be executed for his ministries, he writes young Timothy to charge him, and he says, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Stay faithful to the word of God as I have been faithful to the word of God. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come where they will no longer endorse sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. That's verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 13. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The, off, the drink offering, they would, it would take fluid onto a blazing hot fire and it would evaporate with a poof of smoke and there'd be nothing left. And Paul says, this is my life. I am being poured out as a drink offering, verse 6. And the time of my departure has come. He wasn't getting a flight to L.A., His departure is his death. He was about to be executed. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, which we'll get to in Hebrews, verse 14 of chapter 13, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Then we get to verse 9, and I'm going to skip down. He talks about his being cold, his being in prison. Try to get to me if you can. We don't know if he ever got there. Verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. Verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 13. The Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and into eternity, future. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And by my example, he's saying, I want you to do the same in your life, to know that Jesus will strengthen and encourage you. You don't need me if I'm gone. You need him. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through the proclamation, I might, proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Powerful words. 
that Paul pins to young Timothy. And if you go back to Hebrews chapter 13, I read that because I, I see in that relationship the foundation is laid which sort of describes and shows what we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Reflect upon Paul, young Timothy. Remember his life. Remember his teaching. Remember the fruit of it. Even though he's gone, young Timothy. Maybe this is Timothy. We don't know who wrote this. Even though they're gone, keep your eyes on Jesus, for he is faithful, he's consistent, he will see you through this. Verse 9, which we already covered, don't be covered by various strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. That means religion, that they had had all these practices. When you eat, there was ceremonial rituals, and if you did all these rituals, it was supposed to make your relationship with God better. And Paul says this is rubbish. The author of Hebrews says this is rubbish. That Jesus' work on the cross alone was sufficient to pay for our sins. His sacrifice was once and for all. There's no more ritual for us to go through. There's, there's nothing else for us to do. It's finished. Verses 10 through 14 can get a little bit tricky for us because we're not Jews. We're not living during the first century. Um, we didn't grow up going to the temple making sacrifices. We don't have a high priest that we'd go to uh, with our little lamb or doves or whatever you had uh, to make atonement for your sin that would cover you for, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, however long you'd last. I, I, we didn't grow up with this. We don't have family that's still at the temple, still participating in the, the community event of the, the three main holidays of the year. We're not having people killed around us for following after Jesus and the temptation of your family pleading with you to come back. Stop following this guy that was executed 30 years ago. Verse 9 lays the foundation, contrasting religion with grace. And he's going to expand upon the verse 10, we have an altar. So he's speaking to the Jewish believers here. He's saying we, and this would apply to us, that we have an altar, but he's going to transition and he's going to talk about the priests and he's going to contrast what they were doing in light of what Jesus has done. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So I'm talking about the temple a lot. The author throughout Hebrews is referencing the tabernacle, which was the sort of the mobile temple before they really set up shop in Jerusalem and turned the, the temporary mobile tabernacle into sort of the more of the permanent uh, temple. But in function, they were the same. And so he says these individuals, these priests who serve the table, notice same word, we have an altar which could be a table, they're serving another table at the tabernacle, and he says they have no right to eat. So they're at their table in the tabernacle doing their sacrifices. They have no business at the other table, which we'll see. Or he's going to explain, verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place, 
by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside of the camp. So remember the temple. Uh, to, to remind our, our, our memory, uh, let's use the, the temple. Um, so you have the, the big compound, huge. In the midst of the compound, there's a building. And in that building, there's two rooms. There's the first room that uh, the priest could access and do stuff. Then there was the holiest of holies that was behind that room. And, and he's saying that um, the high priest would make an offering for sin. They would slaughter the animal, they would drain the blood, and they would use the blood because it represented the life of the animal, and they would make this, uh, this offering for sin. And the carcass of the animal would be removed to the outside of the town or outside of the, the, uh, the, the camp, the city, the town, where the people lived because that animal was now unclean because... It represented all of the sins of all of the people that had been placed upon it, and now it's unclean and it needs to be discarded. And so he says, these high priests that are doing this over and over again, they have no business at our altar. Verse 12, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So it's this contrasting picture. What was happening in the beautiful temple, the beautiful tabernacle, Jesus did on the outside of the camp. And if you go to Israel with us on the last day, the last stop, not the last stop, but on the last day, you'll go to the garden tomb. We don't know if it's the actual garden tomb, but there's, there's enough evidence that it could be. And when you walk into the garden tomb, the, the garden, to the right, there's a, a fence that kind of goes alongside and outside of that fence, if you walk over there and you look out, you'll see, you'll see a busy road. You'll see a bus stop and you'll see all of the noises associated with a bus stop. Um, you'll smell garbage and trash and people coming and going because just to the right is the gate into the old city of Jerusalem. And so just like Jesus' day, that gate was there and people came and went and everything happened on the outside of town. And if you take the road past the bus stop and you, you, this is all walking distance, when you get to the left, you'll see a cliff that's shale rock and you'll look at the rock and you can see uh, in the side of the rock, through the cutting out of the rock, it looks like a school. Now there was a snowstorm in Israel and the, the snow broke off a piece of the skull. But it's believed that, what's the name where Jesus was executed? Golgotha, the place of the school. And I don't believe that he was buried or crucified on the, the top. That wasn't the practice of the hill. The practice was that they would be crucified on the side of the road as people were entering the city because as you enter the city, you think, oh, there's Joe, man. Joe, what did Joe, oh, look upon the cross. Oh, Joe, he murdered somebody. So if you come into town and you murder somebody, this is going to happen to you. So there Jesus, naked, on the side of the road where everybody came and went, was crucified, shamefully, outside of the camp, outside of the town. We're told that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. When Jesus died, we're told that what happened in the temple, the veil was torn from top to bottom, separated, symbolizing the access that we now have. This is all through Hebrews. Enter in. You have confidence the work on the cross was sufficient for you. These guys who are still in the temple making sacrifices over and over and over again, they have no business at the altar of Jesus. Why? 
because their very action shows that they reject his offering. The continually slaughtering animals for atonement of sin when Jesus the Messiah has come and made the sacrifice once and for all, by your making these sacrifices, you're demonstrating that you're rejecting his. And so you have no business at his altar if you're still making sacrifices. I grew up in a, a faith where communion, we were told that every single Sunday when communion was taken, that Jesus would literally come back. He would literally be sacrificed again. The communion, the elements would become his body and blood over and over and over again. And I read this, it's rubbish. Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. His death on the cross happened at a moment and place in history. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's no longer being sacrificed because it's complete, period, end of story. And we have access through him, period. And if you suggest that there's still offerings or there's still sacrifices or there's things that you need to continually do to make right with God, you have no place at the table because we're told through the scriptures it's clear Jesus' payment was once and for all sufficient, complete. He stood in your place as a substitute. That's why we use the term substitutionary atonement. So what are we to do? I'm glad you asked. So let us go out to him. Let us go to Jesus. Outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And I get good. This is, the cross is foolishness. You go ask all your friends out that don't know Jesus. It's foolish. It's crazy. I admit it. You're telling me that Jesus became, that God became man and then he died on a cross 2,000 years ago and that makes you good with God? Yeah, that's crazy. I get it. It's crazy. It's foolishness. But to those who have experienced it, it's the power of God unto salvation. We're transformed. And we're to go out to him, bearing his reproach. This week, I keep thinking that old hymn. Who, praise the Lord, I gave me thinking of George Farrington. I know hymns because of George. I didn't grow up knowing hymns. Uh, that's not what I was listening to. I was listening to other stuff that I can't even say here. But now because of George and his influence in my life and how he taught the word and how he lived his life, I read stuff like this and, and I get the words of the old rugged cross stuck in my head. What happened to me? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Now, I didn't memorize them. I just have them kind of in there. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it on dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. His reproach was our glory. He points us to the future hope, verse 14. For here we don't have a lasting city. Where's the here? It's this earth. There's nothing that this world can offer us that's lasting, period. But we are seeking the city which is to come. Paul, right? This is right in 2 Timothy, right? Chapter 4, we just read it. He's looking forward to this future glory, this, this future place. He tells us in uh, Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. 
from which also we eagerly wait a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And those little bump, those now bumper stickers, I don't think they're as popular now, but like not of this world. Our passport is in heaven. He, he tells us in this passage that we have no physical earthly altar. The Jews, they had it. It was a big, glorious temple, this place of sacrifice. Beautiful, glorious. Animals would be slaughtered and blood would flow from the temple down into the Kedron Valley. Magnificent. It was a position that the world would praise. Historians look back. I mean, to this day, you roll into Jerusalem. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world made with the, the, I think it's a limestone rock, though. It's just this white, beautiful city. And the, the remains of the temple, which is not the temple. It's now a, you know, there's a mosque on one end and there's the, the, the golden uh, dome. Still, it's glorious. It's magnificent. The author says, we don't have any of that. We have nothing. We have no citizenship in this earth. We have our heavenly citizenship. I love it when people, you know, every now and again, I'll get, um, I'll get like a random person that will like contact me or, or just from Valley Center and say, oh, we're getting married. Uh, would you be willing to do the, the, the wedding? Could we use your building? And I normally respond very graciously most graciously as I can. And I, and I, I say, well, I'd be happy to, 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 to do your wedding. I, we need to meet and go through some stuff. And I'm like, but have you ever been to our church? Uh, no. I say, well, you might want to look at it because it's not exactly glorious. I mean, look around. I mean, what do you, <laughs> where's the stained glass? We have like white walls and fluorescent lights and the their glory and you know, a little stage that we made a couple years ago. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing spectacular about our, our property. And it should stay that way. I mean, because we're not here. The church isn't the building. This, this is just a place where the church gathers. We are the church. The glory exists in our relationship united in Christ. There's majesty in getting us all together tonight, even for Thanksgiving celebration that that we'll have this, the Spanish group and all of us celebrating, worshiping our Lord in unity together. That's the beauty. It's not this building. I don't have to make a strong case about this building. This isn't some like building that was built in the 1500s with brick and it's wonderful cathedrals that you see all through Europe and, and even here. And the authors say, no, we go out to the outside of the town and we meet Jesus there in his reproach. We don't have anything to offer. He offered it for us. Well, I should correct myself. We do have something to offer him. Go to verse 15. Through him then, not through your works, not through the saints, not through Mary, not through fill in the blank of whatever you want to fill in to add to. It says through him, through Jesus alone. Let us continually offer a sacrifice Wait, I thought there's no more sacrifice. I thought it was once and for all. Well, we have something to offer. Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Think of Romans 12, 1. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, sacrifices up to that point meant an animal went in there, their throat was slit, and they were killed. That the, the living object became dead. 
But now we're commanded to go and offer a living sacrifice that through our lives, our thoughts, our actions, how we interact, this is our sacrifice to God. Lord, here's my life. Use it. Here he says, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, what does this mean? How is it a sacrifice to praise God? Well, so let's just imagine your whole life becomes a country song. Your dog died, uh, car broke down, you got a tear in your beer, your whole life's in shambles. In that worst moment, can you still praise the Lord? Can you praise the Lord after the loss of a child? Can you praise the Lord after losing a spouse? Can you praise the Lord after whatever tragedy comes your way? Can you praise God even though you might fear that somebody might walk in here like happened in Texas? It's a sacrifice. Because it's not about this world. It's about him and what he's done for me. If my life is taken, so be it. He died for me so that I might have life in him. Paul says, it'd be better to die to be with him than to live, but so long as I'm here, I'm going to bring glory to him through this body because I have a purpose. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to glorify him with my body. But if we think, oh, praising God, sacrifice, that's too abstract. But what can we do? He says he's going to explain it to us. That is, you want to know what praising God is? The sacrifice of praising God, that is the fruit of lips, your lips, your words that give thanks to his name. There's there's no holiday that we celebrate that is more Christian than Thanksgiving. Not Christmas, Easter you might have a case for, but, but I think that Thanksgiving is our response. Every day we should be a grateful people. And I want to end with us giving some sacrificial praise. And so what I'd like to do is I want us, I threaten the first service to say we're not leaving until everybody stands up. I'm not going to do that. But I want to give an opportunity for us to worship the Lord sacrificially by standing up and giving thanks to God for something that you're thankful to him for. Not me, you guys. So if you'd like to stand up and share with us why you're thankful to God, we're going to worship him in that way. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for the examples that we've had set before us. We thank you that you have left us uh, with your word to guide us, to direct us. We thank you that you've not left us alone. We have Christ. We have your spirit to guide us. We thank you for our church family. We thank you that this place is very much a place of grace. I pray that you would help us to, to always walk in grace, that we would be guarded from ritual, from religion, and that we would be committed to a relationship with Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us not to treat this as a game, an hour to uh, kill on Sunday, uh, but that this would be a a true place of worship, that we as a body would uh, worship you throughout the week uh, in our lives, that our hearts would be filled with gratitude, I thank you for this time that we were able to just 
um, give you thanks from our lips. And Father, as we go throughout our days, as we find ourselves in difficult times and seasons of grief and mourning, uh, we pray that you would help us to live out that old hymn, to count your blessings, to name them one by one, that we would give you our thanks, our praise, for you've done much for us in Christ. We thank you for the life that we have in him. We pray that you would bless us now. In his good name we pray, amen.